Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Generations of failed housing policies and the lack of political will means that we know at least a quarter of a million people go unhoused in Canada each day. Now, this number does not even include people who don't come into contact with the shelter system. We call that hidden homelessness, and it's estimated that impacts four times the amount of people. All of this somewhere as rich as Canada, a country that says it now recognizes housing as a human right. So on top of being denied the right to housing, one of the realities of experiencing homelessness is difficulty accessing health care. As the housing crisis deepens without any response from the government and the healthcare system crumbles under neoliberal privatization amidst a pandemic, this situation has obviously only gotten worse. This means street nursing, a practice that should have been temporary, is more needed now than ever. Our next guest, Kathy Crow, has spent years as a street nurse, an inherently political job. And though the role of a street nurse was in part created to meet the medical needs of those living on the street, Kathy insists that advocacy and direct action are just as critical, if not more so. After so many years on the front lines learning from the community, Kathy is a wealth of knowledge particularly on where pressure needs to be put to address the needs of the unhoused community and how to finally make the role of street nurse obsolete. Let's hear what she has to say. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to Blueprints of Disruption. Can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Sure. Uh, my name is Kathy Crow, and I've been a longtime street nurse. I've been a nurse a long time, but I've been a street nurse for about 35 years. I just quit my active nursing license December 31st to protest the Ontario government's approach to health care and what they're doing to nursing. But I'm still active and working on um, advocacy on all kinds of housing homelessness issues. And I'm um, a public affiliate is my technical term at TMU, Toronto Metropolitan University. I'm in the politics department there. Teaching. Um, Yes and no. I mean, um, the, the entire university can use me any way they see fit, uh, including <laughs> students. So I do guest lectures in various uh, courses, mostly uh, journalism, criminology, um, some of the progressive departments, um, and students um, access me a lot because you can imagine these issues are really current and a lot of students are doing work on them. In the past, I've carved out um, a bit of a niche in terms of doing what I called um, community health and social justice walks, where I would take students out um, for two to three hours uh, on behalf of their, their professors, you know, to examine and look at city hall politics, um, which there are a lot of, and looking... Um, for example, at the redevelopment of Regent Park, looking at homeless housing services and just kind of walking and talking in a visual, live classroom experience out of the classroom. Um, and that is kind of all on hold right now because really the conditions are so bad on the street. I don't really feel I can take people out gawking at, you know, people 
who are in such distress. So I've done different things like that. Even if it had like an educational purpose, it's still just... Yeah, it's not appropriate. And then I've also worked with um, the Jack Layton chair at TMU and also the social justice, social justice chair, uh, Kike Roach, um, on activities they do. So there's been a bit of a social justice hub at TMU, which is a little bit strained right now. We're not sure what's going to happen with a few of those positions. Uh, and um, so that's a concern. Most people, I think, would know you by the title straighteners. And I've read your works, but can you explain what is a street nurse? And, like, why do we need street nurses? We have public health care. You know, it might be obvious to some with the, the conditions of folks that are living on the streets that are unhoused. But, you know, you say in one of your books, you thought when you got into it, you it would be phased out. This was kind of to address a certain situation now, but what does the street nurse do? Yeah. So, I mean, to begin with, um, there were, there were a group of homeless men who were very, um, I would say politically savvy and they called themselves the balcony group because they hung out on a balcony, I guess. And they came up with the notion with the reality that, um, People that were unhoused were being really discriminated against and not able to access health care. So they lobbied to convince uh, a nurse to start a health care organization called Street Health. So that's an organization, not an, a type of nursing. Like we think of public health nursing. So Street Health Nursing. Street Health is the agency, but the term is Street Nurse. And that came from a, a homeless man who called us that. So um, it means that it's a nurse that's primarily providing health care to people that are homeless or underhoused. Um, it's a bit of a misnomer because it doesn't capture uh, families and children, uh, you know, and people that are literally not on the street. So it's a bit of a misnomer. But I've always used the term, and there's actually a network of street nurses in Toronto that, that was in the past more politically active than I would say they are today. And there are nurses that call themselves street nurses across the country. It really means that their specialty is homeless health care, which theoretically has to include advocacy. Um, theoretically? So, yeah, I say theoretically because I don't really, I'm quite critical these days and I don't really see it happening a lot. Um, in my latest book that I co-edited called Displacement City, I know we'll probably get to that, a young street nurse that I very much admire, Roxy Danielson, has a chapter in the book which is really relevant for any student nurse or nurse to read because she really spells out what a street nurse is and what she ended up doing and having to do during the pandemic. Um, so I was fortunate in that when I became a, first became a street nurse um, at Street Health, um, we were... We were told, we were forced <laughs> to do advocacy. We were told we had to. And that was such a dream. Um, unlike other places I worked afterwards as a street nurse where I was told I couldn't speak out. I couldn't talk to the media. I couldn't be critical of um, the mayor or different policies. That must be hard to do after already wading into it to be told to, to keep quiet after that. 
very hard, and people will know that I, I didn't. And <laughs> at one point, I nearly, I was quite sure that I was going to be fired, and that's when um, I just happened to confide that one day to Charles Pascal, who was the head of the Atkinson Foundation, and lo and behold, he took that seriously and ultimately made me become a Atkinson Fellow for about six years that gave me full freedom. I couldn't be contained. I mean, and I, I do tell the story over and over again of how my manager at one site where I w was working told me I couldn't speak to the media any longer. I could not invite Adam Vaughn, who was then a reporter, into the lobby to meet me, even if we were going off-site to do an interview. And I ended up doing a lot of interviews in on weekends, off hours, and even in alleyways in the reporter's car. To talk about tuberculosis, which at the time, tuberculosis in the homeless population was something I was sadly expert in. Um, well, I was going to say, it wasn't like you were just giving these insider reports to folks. Like, there were pressing health situations, crisis happening with the people you worked with. And it seems prudent to share that. Um, good on you, Kathy. Well, it, I mean, it, it takes its toll because there are, there are increasingly fewer and fewer people that are able to speak out. Um, and I think across the country, your, your listeners might know of local advocates that they always hear speaking about homelessness in their community. And it's rarely the executive directors of organizations who do have the power, who, who should be speaking out on behalf of their workers. So for those who speak out, and, you know, there's about eight of them in Toronto that are, you know, it's really, it's very difficult because, you know, there's... Um, one, one woman, uh, Diana Chan McNally, who just does interview after interview after interview, and she's absolutely the best. And, you know, it's, it's, it's stressful doing, doing the, these. And, you know, you also want to have different perspectives. And you also want to have the media going directly to the people affected, such as unhoused people. And in Toronto, there's a, a man named Gru. G-R-U, Gru, who people will know, they see him. Gru, if you're frequently. listening, we've been trying to get in touch with you. We're going to connect <laughs> later. He's a busy man. Oh, good, good. But yeah, you highlight a lot of activists from the unhoused community in dying for a home. You understand, and we have guests, you know, we're, we're selective of our guests. We're hoping that most people do this, but you understand the need to center those voices, right? So... You're not an outsider, but you are. How do you build trust to get people to share their stories? Did that just naturally come from doing that that work every day in the community? These are people, I imagine, do you see them as co-workers or like clients? What is that relationship like? And yeah, were they eager to share their stories? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, uh, in those days, uh, Dying for Home is about the early 2000s, so it's, it's a, it was my very first book, Dying for a Home, Homeless Activists Speak Out. And at that time, I was a street nurse working at a community health centre, um, and I loved my job. And people knew that I... I think that the, the people who were homeless knew that I would do anything for them. Like, if they were in the hospital, I would visit. I would bring them cigarettes if they were a smoker. You know, I would... Kathy. People knew... People, <laughs> I know, I know. People, but people knew that, and, and that, was, that was the norm among many of my colleagues as well. So then out of that comes trust. And um, 
you know, I remember a young woman, she was one of, literally one of my favorite patients, and she was a patient. I'd known her for, from different locations. And I remember one day, and she had HIV. I remember one day she came in at close to 5 o'clock to see me at the health center. And another nurse, who was not a street nurse, <laughs> um, said, why is she coming here? She has a doctor somewhere else. And I kind of took him on and said, we should be glad and so appreciative she walks in our door and do everything she needs. She needed clothes that day, if I recall. So, I mean, out of that comes trust. And with Tent City, many of the people that are profiled in Dying for a Home, um, they came to us as an activist group. They came to us. We were Toronto Disaster Relief Committee. And they also came to OCAP, Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, and they said, help us not get evicted. So that's what we did, and we met with them regularly. We worked, our group, we were on site there literally every day for close to three years, even on weekends. Uh, I often had to sneak off and do it on my own time. Um, we helped bring in prefab houses. We helped bring in portable toilets. We did what they needed. It was like that show on... Okay, this is a confession. I watch New Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> and that TV show just ended last night. And the, the big story there is that the medical director always said, tell me what you need or how can I help? So that's the approach. Um, so many, many people helped Tent City. So out of that evolved the trust. And um, a writer, an artist named Morris Wolf helped teach me how to do those kind of taped, recorded interviews with people. And everyone... So I still have the recordings um, on, on old-fashioned audio cassette. And everyone signed a contract, and they knew that they would share in the honorariums from the book and that they would have final say on, on an edit. So that trust was there. Yeah, and so the same with the most recent book, Displacement City. Uh, I think there was a lot of... It was a much harder project because it was about the pandemic. And during the pandemic... Everything is harder. Everything is harder. Oh, that makes me feel better to hear you say that. Um, so in Displacement City, we have 30 contributors to the book, about nine of whom are homeless, unhoused, and or have that experience, including a family with uh, some children that were in a shelter. Yeah, we don't often get to hear a lot of that. Um, and we do hear a lot about, well, thankfully, a lot about defending encampments, some successfully, some not. There is a lot of media around them because the police are often involved. We, on our last episode, we, we talked with, uh, Kevin Tagabon of the Hoser Media on the importance of, you know, staying there the entire day to document what was happening to include the voices rather than parroting the press releases, because that's often people's impersonation of the unhoused community is just violently being thrown from tent cities. And I think a lot of folks look to housing as a solution, which it is, right? We, we do have to discuss housing, but much of what you talk about centers around, around that health care. And I think folks would be surprised at the amount of barriers that are in place for folks to obtain health care when they are unhoused. And we often hear that trope, you know, get a job, you know, like folks, a lot of them lack identification. So sometimes you're not just treating wounds or um, doing what we would call typical nurse work or advocating. You do a lot of MacGyvering too, right? I'm talking about your knapsack uh, for a because. I love the 
analogy of your knapsack. Like on the outside is all these very political buttons. You you could recognize them from any march, right? We've all got bags like that. I carried one on my campaign, right? From every protest you've been to and every so everyone knows all the issues you stand for with one glance at your bag. But on the inside you describe like duct tape, medical supplies, bus fare, um almost like a Batman's utility belt. Like I've got something for that. Uh Quite the skill set <laughs> needed to encompass all this. So you need to know about housing, health care, life on the street, politics, city hall politics, I'm sure provincial politics, federal housing. You say your education didn't really prepare you for that. How did you obtain all of these skills and knowledge? Like, just was the learning curve quick or, or did this take 30 years for you to get to this Oh, it took longer than 30. Um, so when you reference my knapsack, I think you're talking about my memoir, A Knapsack Full of yes, Dreams, that, maybe? Yes, or that's the, the imagery. All that, yeah. yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> so in that book, uh, the first like nine chapters in that book are about my involvement as a nurse in political protests ranging from anti-nuclear um, protests to... Uh, anti-apartheid to fighting the return of the death penalty, all of those issues that I directed myself at as a nurse and trying to convince nursing organizations those were issues for them. So that meant learning a lot of advocacy skills, how to write a media release, how to do an action. Um, and there were huge uh, teachers uh, in that area, everything from you know engineers for social responsibility, I hope I have their name right, to Physicians for Social Responsibility, Toronto Disarmament Network. So there were many entities there where I was learning political skills. And then when I became a street nurse, a lot of those carried on. But it was really through colleagues like Barrett German, Gaetan Nehru, um, uh, John Clark, that I was learning more the, the fine-tuned nature of advocacy around housing and homelessness. The nursing part, to be honest, is very straightforward. A wound is a wound. Uh, um, you just have to think about it differently, understanding the social context. So when I do presentations, I often show a picture of a young student nurse doing a dressing on a woman who's outside in kind of an alleyway. And from that picture, then you have to you teach and you talk about, so is the woman indigenous? Does she have diabetes? Why is she outside? Has she been abused? Why is her leg so big? big? Um, where will she get her next dressing on her leg? I can't imagine these were questions taught to you to ask in nursing school, though, to assess a patient. No. So you, you learn them on the ground. Um, my grandson has a, a air cast on his foot right now, and we had to go out the other day and I put a big plastic bag on his air cast, and I said, you know, it was a homeless person that taught me that to keep it dry. So, you know, you just learn things over a period of time. We are inundated in downtown Toronto with healthcare services for people that are homeless. Um, people might be surprised to hear me say that, but it's a never ending problem because there's no adequate shelter or housing for people. So it's very much downstream work, which is why I want to see more nurses doing advocacy upstream to deal with the needs 
such as keep the warming centers open, you know, and expand the 24-hour respite sites and, you know, scream for some more federal money and provincial money for housing. And, in, and if I was the mayor... We need a new mayor, by the way. So if you're interested, Kathy, we can start mounting a fundraiser for your campaign. <laughs> no, but, you know, his polite appeals are not enough, obviously, whether it's for TTC funding or, or uh, housing money. So um, there need to be stronger voices well, I pushing think for that. Mayor Tory, we're talking about John, uh, Toronto Mayor John Tory, and I think he has shown his open disdain for the unhoused community in his treatment of the encampment. So exactly. I want to talk about political strategy a minute because we brought in John Tory and, you know, our appeals to him or the need for a better mayor. But even that might not, we know that like that wouldn't even cut it because you're talking about really systemic issues that are causing there to be a need for street nurses. And I'm reading about some of your battles and then I'm even following you on Twitter in the blizzard we just had where warming centers weren't open until 7 p.m., despite everyone in the country knowing that Ontario was about to get dumped with snow, because we like we like to do that, right? Hype up these storms now to sell ad space or something. I'm not sure, but we all know it's coming. <laughs> the school buses, I think, were canceled before the warming centers, uh, for the next day before the warming centers had been open. Um, constant battles for... And I don't want to be dismissive, sometimes marginal gains. And, and they're marginal in the sense that, like, you folks are begging for the most basic things. So when we're talking about um, COVID, specifically, and the advocacy that had to go on through COVID, you had to fight for masks. Like, <laughs> those are being handed out free at schools and all these other places, but for the unhoused, it was something that had to be fought for. Spacing in shelters just the most basic stuff, that kind of fighting isn't sustainable. And I know you've stopped doing some of the work that you've done. Is that out of exasperation as well? Because that's just, yeah, like I said, that's just not sustainable. Even to ask the young nurses that you're talking to in some of your, your writings and in here, they can't keep that up. What, do, what needs to actually happen so that these these smaller fights don't have to continually be happening. And so folks like at 10 City don't need to reach to organizations to lose the only thing they've got. Like, what really needs to change? Well, the 10 City is a good example because we had a movement during that period of time, and that ended with a win. Um, the 10 City folks, close to 140 of them, won housing through a historic rent supplement program. And most of them uh, remained in, well, they all remained in housing. Um, some have since passed away, but nobody asked to go back to the contaminated land on the waterfront to live. Everybody took the rent supplement, which augmented their income and allowed them to find uh, rentable, affordable housing. Um, so that was a win. And it was also a national win because it put rent supplements on the radar as a as a mechanism for housing people in the short term. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have to make myself step back from some things, um, but also because there's a younger generation of uh, advocacy workers, frontline workers that are advocates that are out there, 
that are doing terrific things. And I'm, I try to mentor, I try to give tips and advice. I nag them sometimes. Um, like, we need to do this now, you know, but it's all from experience and mostly I think they find it helpful. So there's always a strategy to move forward. So right now, the warming center, for example, shows us at our weakest. We have obvious, obvious need for more shelter beds. We have city statistics in Toronto that show the shelter system is full and central intake, which is a city of Toronto body, is turning 140, 150, 160 people away every night. And it's Canada, and we have a blizzard that comes in, and we have the worst-case scenario of having to fight for the warming centres to be open, and then they only open at 7 p.m. At the same time, we had two, three different organisations, in fact, Health Providers Against Poverty, Shelter, Housing and Justice Network, and Stone Soup, which is a faith group, uh, put together a very sophisticated advocacy campaign. Each of them got 1,500 signatures that went, emails that went directly into councillors in the mayor's office. We had uh, two committees that had dozens and dozens of deputations, including a whole raft of doctors from ER rooms in the hospitals in the city that deputed on the need. And we have a strong mayor, a stubborn mayor, um, a callous-hearted mayor that is holding firm. Even though we built quite a movement on this particular issue, overall, we're quite weak on the ground in terms of a stronger advocacy movement. And that's for a few reasons. Uh, Labour has stepped back from this issue for various reasons. Do you know any of those reasons? Well, I'm sure it's uh, in part their leadership, um, and I'm sure it's maybe related a little bit to decreasing union membership. I don't know enough about the insides of the union movement, but I think John Clark covered some of that in a recent podcast you did with him. I mean, in the past, I had very strong connections with Labour, um, and w no matter what you think of them, uh, Buzz Hargrove, I took out on a disaster tour to show him and Sam Gindon firsthand the conditions. Um, the former Canadian auto workers is who paid for the toilets at Tent City. Um, Elementary Teachers Federation worked on a guideline on homeless families and children. You know, we had we had contacts. They could have been better, but we had contacts. Now there's nothing, nothing that I know of. Um, and, you know, other factors include advocacy is not taught very well in universities and colleges. Uh, students have inadequate placements. I even took political science, and that was something I definitely had to learn on my own, too. And, uh, and then COVID hit, but prior to COVID, we had something called Housing First, and that's capitalized, Housing First, which is an American ideology of how to deal with homelessness. It inserted its way. It was essentially imported into Canada. I watched it happen. I have a whole chapter in my memoir about it. I literally saw it happen, and it is now federal, provincial, and city policy. Um, Housing First is a very discriminatory policy, and it's what I call smoke and mirrors. It makes the appearance that governments are doing something on homelessness, but primarily on people with addictions and mental illness. And it's not a broad social housing program that is building social housing. And uh, to make matters worse, the federal government 
that funds shirt grants and research into homelessness uh, is funding researchers that then are being funded by a housing first ideology government. Um, I mean, I know it's hard, it sounds great, housing first, but obviously it's not happening. When I began this work as a street nurse, there were 3,000 people homeless in Toronto. Now it's estimated there are 18,000 in the course of a year. And, and we can never really know those numbers, couldn't we? Like, how, how? We know that there are over 9,000 shelter beds. We know that there are, um, you know, who knows, maybe 1,000 people outside. City statistics are what tells us the 18,000 number that over the course of a year will experience homelessness. So that's a way under estimation. So, you know, we're not doing very well for such a rich country. And then we have bigger forces at play. I Those bigger forces, I think, you know, personified by the mayor, those are, you know, we talk about systemic issues on the show a lot and, and what is needed um, vaguely a political revolution um, that reframes um, the idea of what it means to be human, honestly, right? And what we are entitled to and what our rights are. And, you know, short of that, though, is what a national housing strategy go a long way? I know that's something that you've fought for for a long time and that has been promised by every type of government possible. But really, even with that liberal... uh, promise of restarting the efforts we've not really seen anything and um is that a a solution in lieu of that revolution we need <laughs> uh, well i think we need both <laughs> but so the trudeau, gov- we'll the take trudeau both. government brought in a national housing strategy in 2017 and promised to uh, insert the right to housing in legislation which they have done and i think the Proof is in the pudding, as they say. Things are worse, and that's because of the housing first focus and not enough money is put into really building social housing, RGI, rent geared to income housing. So um, I never liked the fact that it was called a national housing strategy. We would not call Medicare a health care strategy. It's a program. It's a fully funded federal program where monies go to the province and the province has to put in money too. And that's how it used to be. Strategy just kind of implies like a framework, that's right. right? Like right. that sounds like a lot of consultations and a lot of what it could or will be talk. And but. all of the national housing bodies, such as CHRA, Canadian Housing Renewal Association, Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, even the Co-op Housing Federation of Canada, uh, we do not really hear them being loud and critical of the current government. And I I have big problems with that. So we're just going downhill. And my friend uh, Barrett German compares our need a lot to Medicare, which of course is under attack right now as well. But we would never allow Medicare to be provided only to people for their appendix or for a gallbladder. So what I'm trying to compare it to is so for housing, We have to be building housing for everybody, not just for people with mental illness and drug addictions who are on the street, right? When Housing First was first introduced, you could be homeless and have cancer and be in Seton House, but not qualify for a Housing First housing allotment because you weren't on the street. Now, that's all been modified a little bit because of advocacy, 
But housing, a national housing program has to be for students, has to be for seniors. It has to provide um, accessible housing, family housing. And that's what was in the talk, right? Like the, the liberals talk a good game yeah, because, it, you know, we will prioritize marginalized communities and, you know, um, I guess that's just in the strategy. They're still strategizing on how to do and that. Then, and, then, and then COVID hit. And, and that was really the hardest, hardest lesson on every front. But with respect to a global pandemic, the fact that after year one of the pandemic, we as a country had not got our act together to realize that we had to reframe how we looked at shelter and housing. So instead instead of what we're doing now, which is we're closing shelter hotels and we're shoving people back into congregate shelters, what we should have done is established a vision and like a wartime effort so that there would have been a rehousing program. So there would have been a massive amount of rent supplements and housing put up really fast. There's a problem with that, though. So that the idea would be never again. So all of the individuals in shelter hotels and in shelters would be streamed and supported. They actually use the word decanting, if you can imagine. Decanting is the technical word for moving people out of shelter hotels. That they should be going into housing. And all we got really on that front was the Rapid Housing Initiative, RHI, from the federal government that money went to a certain number of cities to allow them to purchase an empty hotel or a building and convert it into housing. So there's two buildings in Toronto we're doing that with. And then we got this modular housing concept. So Vancouver experimented a lot with modular housing years ago. And so now in Toronto, um, Mayor Tory's proudest achievements is that he got this federal money for modular housing which I, by the way, would never say no to, but we have to ask, why are we creating these little ghetto communities of all homeless people are going to go and live in the modular housing? And they're 300 square feet, and they don't have a full operating kitchen, and they're modular. It still speaks to how we value their lives, right? Like as a society that, okay, fine, we'll concede that they deserve quite literal shelter, but that's it. You know, and, and 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 they should be thankful for programs like that. But I know what you mean when you feel yourself having to say, like, okay, we'll Absolutely. take it. I feel the same way when I complain about the NDP. Like, okay, I know it's the lesser of all the evils, but we can still definitely ask for better than that or or structure so that we expect everyone to live safe safely as well and be able to thrive. Like I've seen the modular housing kind of blueprints and, and um I did some work with the York Region Housing Coalition, and, and it frustrated me when that was a focus of the advocacy work. Mini, tiny houses, modular homes. We, They do other work now, um, and I'm very proud of the work that they do, but I was really frustrated by that approach as a socialist because I guess I'm looking to really transform the narrative, and, and I find like those kinds of solutions, although will save lives right now, right? We almost are like food banks. Like we had an episode on food banks where it's like we're starting to normalize, like that is the level of housing that we can provide. That's the bare minimum or 
that folks like you need to be doing all of this work consistently, constantly, um, and recruiting more people to do it in order just to get the bare minimum all the time. So yeah, I kind of wanted to be a little more uh, systemic in our approach as well. But. And, and just to remind, like, depending on the age of listeners, you will know this or it might be new information to you. When we had the National Housing Program, because we did once have one up until 1993, we built uh, 20,000 new units a year across the country. And in Toronto, we built 3,900 a year. And when I do walking tours, I point to that building and that building and that co-op and 319 Dundas East. And these are all buildings built when we had a national housing program. I live in one right now. I live in a co-op that was built with that program. That's like 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the, li- the life and the sustainability. So what's one of my favorite parts of Displacement City is the afterword written by Sean McAuliffe, and he describes, as only he could describe, um, the blocks of co-ops that are that sprung up around Toronto during that period of time. Yeah, so we know how to do this in Canada. It's not, it's not unknown to us. We have excellent, excellent practice and experience doing this. But we don't have a national movement right now that is throwing demonstrations and rallies and pushing for this. It's really, really missing. I find like, no matter what topic we co- well, not, we cover here on the show, like that is a consistent frustration. Um, healthcare, like you talk about the needs of, you know, that we have Medicare under attack and folks are wondering where the big pushes, where the escalation is. And you talk about that in some of your writings, how, you know, you, you do the deputations, you use the avenues that are provided to us to engage in our democracy, and it's really going nowhere. And folks can expect even more of that with Mayor Tory's new powers, right? So even if you do have councillors that you've made those appeals to and, and won them over, that really is not going to do the job. Ford is the premier and the national housing strategy is missing. So like electoral politics we're really missing a lot of political will here. You've escalated your, you know, you've used some creative tactics before as well to draw attention to issues, especially in times of crisis. Do you find those effective? Um, I'm talking secret footage that you needed to leak in order to expose the living conditions. Um, I honor the great lengths that you went through to make sure you weren't... um, violating people's privacy or shutting down some of the services, even though they are problematic, right, because they're still needed. But you've also, you know, been in your face with politicians in terms of, you know, I think there was a story about boxes of ashes were sent to politicians. You want to talk about like the different tactics that you've used and ones that you would never do again, maybe? <laughs> sure. Like what's working and what's not? Sure. Um, yeah. And so there's a whole chapter in um, Knapsack Full of Dreams, my memoir, Um, that is introduced, so just bear with me. Um, Every chapter in that book is introduced by a film that inspired me. So the chapter on strategies is introduced by the film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. You have to read it to (laughs) see the movie and you'll get it. But anyway, it's about um, strategies, about kicking ass, I suppose. 
So the ashes story, let me start with that just so that people don't get the, uh, the wrong impression. So um, a young woman, uh, 18 or 19 years old, burned to death in the Don Valley many years ago. And the site where she died was just like left a mess by, by the city. So Bob Rose, a colleague, and myself and a few other people went to clean up the site and plant some flowers. This was in the ravine. Uh, we collected the ashes, not of her body, but of her belongings, and put them into three boxes, tied them up with yellow police tape, and we, in person, delivered them to Mayor Mel Lastman. I think it was Ernie Eves, the premier, and uh, Jean Chrétien, the prime minister, as a political statement. Uh, I can't say that necessarily produced a result, but, well, it... it it heightened the awareness, I suppose. We've taken this, uh, we've, we've used court systems routinely, both uh, uh, coroner's courts for inquests and other courts, usually with a victory, uh, ranging from tuberculosis uh, protocols and outreach to the initiation of warming centers came from the freezing deaths inquest in 1996 so much as how that's working badly. But during the pandemic, uh, there were two court cases that are described in Displacement City. Uh, this tells you a lot, the fact that we were, um, we were a group of us doctors, nurses, outreach workers. We had a phone call with the medical officer of health, Dr. Davila, very early on in the first two months of the pandemic, appealing to her to direct shelters to move mats and cots and beds two meters away because we were all told six feet two meters stay away from people different standards for different people right. <clears throat> and uh, we didn't get anywhere and then she was asked at a public press conference by a media person if she would do that and she said no she preferred that shelters would do that on their own well in Toronto we have 60 to 70 shelters operated by different providers they were all in absolute crisis slash chaos, slash they are not public health providers. So we knew that it would be hit and miss if it would happen. So we took the city to court. That's an expensive tactic to use. I'm glad that you've been pretty much successful during them. That is promising. And it's something more people are doing, lawsuits or challenges through the courts. But there's a real cost barrier. No, there were no costs to us, essentially. We had a these were uh, lawyer friends. Well, it was six organizations, six, um, the Black Legal Clinic, uh, Aboriginal Legal Services, Advocacy Center for Tenants in Ontario, and about four or five others, HALCO, which is the HIV AIDS legal. Um, I mean, there were small costs for disbursements or something. Uh, agencies chipped in a hundred bucks, uh, but, and we won. <clears throat> we won. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had, maybe 10 or 11 known COVID deaths during the pandemic in unhoused people. Could be higher, we don't know, but it could have been hundreds and hundreds. So that's only one, I'm not saying, you know, COVID is airborne, I wanna stress that, but two meters moving people apart, decrowding, that led to the shelter hotels. That's what resulted in the shelter hotels. So, so that, you know, and then there was another court case um, led by A.J. Withers 
and Derek Black and others trying to stop encampment evictions, and unfortunately they lost. But I, I see Doug Ford appealing. So we've seen some victories provincially with lawsuits and court actions, and then Doug Ford or, you know, sometimes even the federal government with residential schools spending years under repeal. Were you making, were your cases just so straightforward and such basic needs that they wouldn't dare appeal uh, the ruling on that or it just or do you experience that as well just drawn out because it seems unique your 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 victories well I think our our victories was on a much smaller scale where there was maybe less for the government to lose and they certainly didn't give in willingly they fought us the entire time nitpicking over details and you know now the spacing requirement is is gone. I think other oh, because the pandemic's over, Kathy. Right? Isn't that what they're? <laughs> oh boy, the spacing's over. So, but I think the fact that you know we had to fight for portable toilets in parks, we had to fight for the, the taps to be turned on in the summer in parks, mass. Um, this was an interesting strategy. Some when mass when K and ninety five masks were mandated finally for for workers. They weren't being provided for clients in shelters. And um, there were a lot of people working on mass donations. And the Rotary Club is somebody, surprisingly, an entity that we've had close contacts with from the days of Tent City. So they did a massive purchase and collection of something like 30,000 KN95s to donate to wherever I, myself and Diana Chan McNally felt they would be well used. So that happened, but they didn't leave it at there. They knew how to do the advocacy. So they wrote to the city, they publicized and took photographs of their mass collections to embarrass the city, to show the discrimination. And ultimately then the city came up with 300,000 KN95 masks. Well, John Tory wasn't gonna lose that photo op, right? They, they stole his social media thunder by coming and saving the day. But it's still, yeah, the amount of, you say it didn't cost, the legal things didn't cost you money, but those organizations had to raise funds. And it's just, yeah, it's so dang frustrating, the levels that have to happen for, like, masks during a pandemic. That's, that's unreal. I but. think people will be really shocked in, in Displacement City, the stories that are told there. And... They're told really well, and the displacement stories are linked to colonialism, to um, racial discrimination, to the denial of service. Sometimes displacement is so vivid, it's like evicting people from camps. But sometimes it's exclusion, not opening shelters, not not allowing for... Being refused service, literally, from shops, right? Like yeah. Literally. The right to refuse service. Yeah, I think people would be shocked in the barriers that exist, kind of, that are less obvious to us. And this this interview has been a bit of an eye-opener, although I have kept up, to, kept up with your work, that housing alone just certainly isn't the issue. And there's a, definitely a more critical lens needed for the housing solutions that have been proposed. Um, also, like the term affordable housing um, is a big misnomer. So coming from uh, municipal government and provincial governments, that's not much to get excited about anymore either. And I read your statement about the frustrations that you felt, and especially under this Ford government, as being a nurse and 
how other nurses must be feeling in this moment. And you decided to stop. And you talk about nursing being inherently political, but at the same time, declining in politics, right? Like, there are fewer advocates, fewer networks, national movements. What are you going to work on now, then, um, now that you've stepped away for that to remedy some of these gaps that we have? Where where should the focus be? Well, sadly, right now, uh, a huge amount of energy is being put in by myself and a couple of other people to try to convince the faith community to not reopen the Out of the Cold program, which is a voluntary-run winter shelter program. To not reopen it? Correct. Okay. (laughs) We need context. (laughs) So the Out of the Cold program began about 34 years ago by Sister Susan, a nun, where uh, a church would open its basement and provide shelter for a night, and it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And every uh, faith site would have about 200 volunteers. Um, And initially in the few years, it saved lives. And it did save lives. But it also, for 34 years, operated as a third class, a third tier shelter system for the city, saving the city millions of dollars, millions of dollars, but creating a nightly forced migration So if it was Monday, you might be at St. Patrick's. Tuesday, you might be at Holy Blossom. Wednesday night, you would be at Blythewood. Every single night, an individual would be forced to move to a different church basement or synagogue. Um, Not just an individual, but like the unhoused community, right? right? Hundreds of people. Okay. Um, Right. You know, it was run by very caring, well-meaning volunteers. They did food great, (laughs) but eventually it became not sustainable and it was very unhealthy and people only had mats on the floor primarily. Uh, Not every site had showers. It was unsustainable and then people would have to leave in the morning. So it persisted forever despite advocates trying to get more shelters open. So now uh, that program ended, and we encouraged it to shut, and it had to shut when COVID happened um, for, for, I hope, what are obvious reasons, you know, force, forcing a lot of people to stay in a place altogether, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, now people are kind of inching towards reopening it, and we're trying to convince them not to do that and instead to put their advocacy energy into convincing the city to do the right thing. This should be a a city-run shelter is a city response. It's a government responsibility. So we're putting a lot of effort into that. And dealing with uh, homeless deaths and cold alerts. So I'm still doing all of that stuff. On the nursing front itself, I really don't know what to do because I'm inspired by the National Health Service nurses in Great Britain. I'm inspired by... New York City nurses and Quebec nurses that recently walked off the job and did staged protests in different ways. And I, for the life of me, knowing what I know about what acute care and long-term care facilities are facing, I just do not understand why there cannot be a level of protest that doesn't deny service, but still targets and has days of action in some format by nurses, for nurses, for patients, for consumers of health care. If we don't do that, nothing will be improved. 
You just have to watch our premier in Ontario, his recent actions trying to poach healthcare workers from other provinces. He's going to make it easier for nurses from other provinces to come to Ontario. They can work for a year before having to do their licensure, etc. And instead of, you know, really responding to the union's demands for better working conditions and, you know, drop the drop the challenge to build 234, which is a wage suppression. Is that the right number, 234? I believe it is. That's, that's a wage suppression piece of legislation. Um, so I don't know. I just keep appealing and on social media and writing about it. But I think other unions have to s- step up as well and, and support um, what the crisis. Um, it breaks my heart. And, and when I... When I did my resignation <laughs> interview on CBC, I broke down because, and the, Chris Glover, the journalist, asked me, why are you so upset, Kathy? And I'm upset when I think about what's going on in pediatric emergency rooms. The most recent news is that, you know, hundreds if not thousands of children have delayed elective surgery. And you have to be a nurse to know what that means. You know, a child that's waiting for a cleft palate surgery that cannot get it in time is going to have their speech affected, their nu- their nutrition affected, their learning affected, their body image affected. And you can say that for many, many, many surgeries. Permanent damage will be taking place, let alone what I'm hearing about in the adult ERs, um, which I think is partly why, for the first time in my career, I saw dozens of doctors leaving their workplace to come to City Hall to speak to what was needed around homelessness. You know, it was that was very interesting. Or politicizing the doctors now, too. Good, yeah. go- um, good job, was, Cassie. Well, I, I mean, I didn't do that. that, that, that they did it. I mean, uh, medical education has really stepped up, and I'm so impressed. And I can't say that there were a dozen nurses there that day which I don't understand. I, I really don't. So I hope, I hope nurses will, nursing students will listen to the podcast and know there's ways that they can enter the profession and, and know the layout of politics and economics and what their voice can mean. That's really important to me. Well, I can only imagine if they could come in with the knowledge you wish you had gotten in nursing school can you imagine the formidable oh, force that they could be? I can't imagine, yeah. Um, if they follow your path and be, like like I said, just better prepared, more aware, and have mentors to lean on. And they want it. I know that they want it. I mean, if you're getting into nursing in this day and age, knowing what's in store for you, there has to be a real personal drive. There probably always has been with nursing. It's like we call them angels. It's a, If anyone's ever... You really experience the healthcare system. You know that's mostly who's providing the healthcare and the compassion. And so um, it does take a certain individual, but even more so now, and even more so in Ontario. So I hope that other nurses draw that same inspiration that you are from New York because they were they did make a lot of gains. Uh, the New York nurses and the NHS in the UK has had sustained actions to to create that kind of pressure. I feel the same way, Kathy. Uh, we talk about it a lot on the show, just the need for labor to use the resources that they have to mobilize people. Uh, we saw 
it happened when when bargaining rights were under attack, not just the response from labor, but everybody else around who didn't even have bargaining rights. Some might not even understand the value of bargaining rights, but they were called to action. They were mad and they they got up and they did stuff. So if not now, when, you know, you tell these horror stories from from the hospitals, we were all hearing them from our local hospitals too on Facebook, people getting stuck in the, hosp- the the hallways for days and whatnot. So what will it take? I ask myself that a lot. In fact, we're, we're having a live stream tonight. People won't, it'll all already have aired by the time you hear this. So check it out on our YouTube. But it is, it's just a discussion around who's doing the fight, where can we connect more people together, plug them into something near them. The Ontario Health Coalitions, you know, are wanting to escalate their tactics as well. So I appreciate not you just coming on the show today, Kathy, but all of the work that you've done. Honestly, um, yeah, the fact that we need street nurses is a tragedy in itself, but the fact that they exist and, and that nursing is maybe becoming inherently more political. I know you say that it should be, and I think every, everyone should be political in their approach to whatever... Uh, they do, but nursing, it just seems obvious. Um, so I hope, you know, there's more development there and, and success. And yeah, just thank you for sharing your stories. Well, thanks. Well, I think, and I think the role of your podcast is really important because it's a form of media that's, you know, missing a little bit in mainstream journalism, like that, this kind of investigative look at issues. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kathy. Um, and, you know, I, I won't say enjoy retirement because I, I feel like you haven't slowed down at all. Like you're just still fighting these same fights. But um, well, what I say is I haven't retired. I've stopped. I've stopped my nursing license as a political statement. Um, I'm still, yeah, doing other, lots of other things. <laughs> Whatever it takes, Kathy, right? <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Thank you. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.